0: All right, y'all, how we doing? Huh? You uh, want to bring one of All right, hey, if you have a Bible, let me see it. Let me see it in the air. Let me see it, let me see it, let me see it. Heck yeah, okay? We're going to be diving into this thing tonight. So open up to the book of Daniel chapter four. We're going to pick up where we left off last night, okay? Daniel chapter four. Um... Okay, y'all, uh, tonight we're talking about something we've been talking about all week, right? Uh, we opened up to the book of Matthew uh, chapter seven and we asked this question, right? Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, right, what is it, why is it so important that we would hear God's word and that we would put it into practice? He says, this is, if you actually believe in me enough to do what I say, not believe in me Just like believe that there is a God, but actually put your trust in me, put your hope in me, put your faith in me to believe these words of mine enough to do them, enough to put them into practice. It says, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like the person who builds their house on the rock. rock. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to build your house to put the the foundation of your life on the rock? It says, because the rain's gonna come and the wind's gonna blow and there's gonna be a reality of trials in life and a storm and the reality is that you and I, we are eternal beings, right? That we happen to have a body right now, but we actually are a soul and that soul is eternal and it was designed to spend eternity with God. But last night we talked about this thing called sin, that creates this fracture in our relationship with God. Do you remember uh, five foot zero and six foot seven that whether your sin, like if we sat down and we had a conversation and you went like, look, I know I'm a sinner. Like, let me tell you about the brokenness in my life. And like, that's really obvious to me. Or some of you might wrestle with that. Some of you, the reality is you look at your life and you go like, I'm not that bad. And yet, if we if we look at scripture, we understand that like every single one of us has a sin problem, right? And whether it's five foot zero, oh, like really obvious that you're not tall enough to ride, or maybe you're six seven, kind of going like, when I look around me, I feel like I'm not that bad. Both of those sin problems, if the you must be this tall to ride, being right with God is one thousand two hundred fifty feet in the air. Last night we finished with this concept of like, we all all people with sin which is every single one of us goes i can't i'm i'm I, there's nothing i can do within myself to be righteous enough right with god enough and so we finished last night's message with a little bit of hopelessness going well shoot We have a sin problem right and maybe it's pride maybe it's the fact that you know a lot about god but you don't actually know god maybe it's idolatry maybe there's something in your life that you go man all of my time and my attention and my talent is going towards this one thing because the reality is we all are worshipers so if we don't worship god we will worship something else and every single one of us has that sin problem we finished last night with a little bit of this like well shoot What do we do now? And here's the cool part. Tonight, what we get to talk about is the the very reality that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reason they're called the Gospels is because they talk about the good news that this entire book, all 66 books, all 40 authors are writing about this Jesus character. Not about what we have to do to get to him, but what God has done to move heaven and earth to get to us. Why? Because it says that he loves us. Maybe a familiar verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him, not just a a cognitive belief, not just a mental recognition that there is a God, but a belief that says, I believe in you enough to do what you say. I trust you. For God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, the good news of the gospel, so that whoever which is open to everyone. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Jesus, we are all eternal beings. And tonight, that good news of the gospel—we're going to lay it out, and we're going to talk about what does it look like for you to respond to that. But I think for some of you in this room, even maybe as I talk about uh, this gospel message or this good news of the gospel, if you're anything like me, when I was in junior high or when I was in high school, um, I had heard the Bible preached about the gospel like 572 times, right? It's just like I had had been around church and I had been around that. And like, it's like when I heard the gospel message, I went like, oh, cool. Like I've already done that, but like this isn't really for me. Like this is maybe for somebody else in the room. And I just want to encourage you, every junior hire in the room, every counselor in the room, that would you lean in tonight and understand that the good news of the gospel is for every single one of us to respond to. Right? Whether you've heard it a thousand times or maybe this is the very first time you hear it. And here's here's why I believe that, okay? Um, anybody been to Disneyland before? Okay, heck yeah. I... I love Disneyland. This last year, um, when I, was at, I went to Biola University, I had like a, a, one of the annual passes for like all three years that I, that I was there, my freshman, sophomore, junior year. I didn't get it my senior year, but those first three years I had it, we would just go like study for a test in Disneyland. It was the best thing ever. But I got a Disney pass this last year, my wife and I, because our, our two little girls can come with us for free. And seeing Disneyland through their eyes is like a whole new experience, I love it. But I, I want you to imagine, just for a second, That I, we, like the first time we told Piper about Disney, like Homegirl loves Minnie Mouse. Like she's a big Minnie Mouse fan, okay? And like the first time we told her about Disneyland, it's like, yeah, that's where Minnie lives. She was like, what? What? like let's go to Disneyland so we we pack up and we get in the car and the whole way we're there she's just like we're going to Disneyland we're going to Disneyland we're going to Disneyland it's like you've never even been to Disneyland why are you so excited right like you don't know anything about this place but she was so pumped to go and I want you to imagine just for a second that we get into Disneyland and we go and we like scan our passes right so we're like walking up we park we walk the like 14 miles that it is from the car to the entrance and we get there right and we we swipe our passes and they're like hi welcome to Disneyland and we get into Disneyland and then we stop like right in that entryway, right? You know, like if you've never been there before, there's like, there's like these spots where you scan your tickets and then you come into this like plaza entryway and right in the plaza entryway, like it's, it's already magical. There's like these flowers laid out with a Disney with like a Mickey Mouse mask and there's all these benches and there's people to greet you there and they're already dressed up and then there's this like monorail train that goes overhead and I want you to imagine just for a second that Paige, I and myself, Phoebe and Piper, we all sit down on a bench right there and the, just like just right inside the gates of Disneyland and we sit and we're like, we made it. This is it, Disneyland. And Piper's all excited. She's like, woo, Disneyland, like this is sweet. And we sit down and 15 minutes goes by and the train goes overhead. And I'm like, oh, Pipes, look at that train, look. She's like, whoa, Disneyland, this place is magical. We sit down, like, did you see the Mickey Mouse and the flowers? And she's like, look, she's like, oh, Mickey Mouse. And we sit down, 30 minutes goes by and we're still sitting there and we're like, oh, there's the train again. This is it, It's Disneyland. Three hours, four hours go by, and we're still sitting right at this entrance. You know, we're sitting in this bench, and Piper's maybe a little bit bored now. I'm like, oh, there's the train again. She's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Saw it the first ten times, Dad. Train. Yeah, did you see the Mickey Mouse? Yeah, flowers. Oh, it's cool. Disneyland. And we just sit there right at the entrance, right in this little, like, plaza all day long. And we get home, and maybe you come and find us, and you're like, Pipes, Austin Page, how was Disneyland? And we're like, no, it's cool. It's cool. Like, well, what rides did you go on? Oh, we didn't go on any of the rides. Wait, what? You were at Disneyland, right? No, no, no. Yeah, we were there. We went to Disneyland. Okay, wait, what characters did you see? Oh, no, we didn't. We didn't see any of the characters. Huh? What do you mean you didn't see it? You got a you got a churro, though, right? No, no, didn't get a churro. Corn dog? Nope. Dole Whip, like the pineapple Dole Whip, right? Like that's like you had to get the Dole Whip. It's like no, no, no. So you didn't go on any rides? Nope. Didn't see any characters, nope. Didn't get any food, no, no, no. You sure you were at Disneyland? Yeah, we were there. Monorail, Mickey Mouse mask, flowers. It was great, it was great we were at Disneyland. See friends, I think some of us, we treat Christianity this way. We treat the gospel this way. And you'd sit here and you go like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe there's a God, I, I go to church. I go to youth group like most of the time. As long as I don't have too much homework, As long as I don't have sports that night, like I'm there, I I go to church. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, tell me about the depth of your relationship. Tell me about like the infinite joy that you can experience in God. And you're like, hmm? Like, tell me about the things that God's doing in your life and the ways that he's moving and like the vibrancy of your relationship and like the worship response, like the lyrics to that last song as you declare like when the race is over, we're gonna stand before the throne. And you're like, huh? What? I mean, you said, you said you know Jesus, right? You, like, you've heard the gospel before, right? It's like, no, 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 yeah. And I think a lot of us, right, maybe you believe that there's a God. Maybe you understand the truth of Scripture enough to go like, no, for sure. Like, I go to church. I'm about it. But I think for some of us, we're sitting at the entrance of Disneyland going, kind of bored. Like, yeah, church is cool. Like, the Bible's okay, it's a little confusing if i'm being honest and like i will go to church and like worship is all right like church is okay and friends a lot of us are sitting at the entrance we're like we're barely inside the gates of understanding the gospel and what i want us to see and understand tonight is every single one of us in the room would you know and understand that tonight the god of the universe is beckoning you deeper into relationship with him I, 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 one of my favorite, um, theologians, authors, his name is CS Lewis, and he uses this analogy to talk about how we as human beings so often settle for something so much less than the gospel offers. I, I live in, uh, San Diego and so we're coastal and I love to surf and I love to go down to the beach and my nephews, I have three nephews and they all live in Kansas and my nephews came and visited and they were like, can we go to the beach please? Right. You ever been to the beach with somebody from the Midwest? It's nuts, right? Like For us, like if you live in California, like you see the ocean. If you're anything like me, like every time I see the ocean, I'm like, whoa. Right? Like that just like it makes me feel teensy tiny. Do you know there's areas of the ocean that we still haven't explored? Like how nuts is that? Like there's still depths of the ocean. Humans are like, no, we don't know what's down there. Right? Like that's that's wild, right? And so like I'll stand on the edge of the ocean, like every time I surf and I'll just sit out there and I'm just sitting on my board like. Holy smokes! Like this is this is nuts! Like the ocean's awesome, and and so even for like Californians, the ocean can evoke this like awe and wonder. Y'all go to the beach with somebody from Kansas, and they're like, like it's, there's there's nothing like it. They're like it's kind of like Lake Michigan. You're like, no, it's not right. Like it is, no, it's not right. Like they're like the wind swell. You're like no 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 shut up right. So it's like I went to the beach with my three nephews. And there's this place called the harbor down in Oceanside where it's like this big open beach. But in the parking lot, right, there's a there's a shower that's in the parking lot for the surfers that come out of the water. And the showers like low key are Pretty disgusting, like, like the, when people are like, like washing their wetsuits off, like you know there's pee like down like mixed in down there, and there's like some sand from all the boards and like the people that have showered and like showered their little kids there, and like all the like mud and water and muck and shower water it's just like it's kind of gross. And so we go to the beach, and when you go to the beach with kids, y'all, like it's as if you're moving to the beach, like the amount of equipment that you have. And so we park the cars and we're like unloading, and I look up and my nephews, all three of them have their like sand toys out and they're bent down in like the shower water and they're like playing and like building sand castles with like the mud and the shower water. And I'm like, ugh, like y'all, like if you would have walked like 50 more feet, it's like the whole sandy beach and the ocean. And they're just like settling, just like content playing with like the pee water. And I'm like, yeah, y'all, like y'all are missing it. It's right there, like, like what you're settling for here is, it's not it. And I think so often when we have this unwillingness to believe that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness, we settle for something that isn't the good news of the gospel, that isn't the infinite joy offered. So as we dive into the story tonight, I, w- I want to look at the end of the life of Nebuchadnezzar. I want to look at this Daniel character that we saw And the drama's this morning thrown into the piranha pit. But throughout the story, I don't want to just tell the story of Daniel for the sake of telling the story of Daniel. I want us to to look at this God character in this story and start to ask the question, who is this God character? And why is the good news of the gospel so good? Okay, so Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 in Meadow Ranch. If you're there, give me a nice loud, Preach! All right, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored, okay? If you have a pen with you tonight and you have your Bible open, I want you to just circle that word restored, okay? At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high God. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, do y'all remember like the context of what Nebuchadnezzar is saying right now? He's been, there's been this like seven year gap where he faced the consequence of his own sin, of his own pride, of his own idolatry. And his sanity is now restored and he's declaring the goodness of who God is. But I don't want to just understand that his sanity was restored. I want you you to understand what he's declaring about this God. Verse 36, it says, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me from the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne. Third time that word is used and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory of the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, friends, the first thing I want us to understand about the good news of the gospel is we have a God whose heart is restoration. He desires to take that which was broken, that which was lost, and restore it to himself. And what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is we don't want to just study a story about a king who was restored. We want to understand and look in the mirror and understand, hey, what are the areas, what are the parts of my life, what are the parts of your life that God seeks to restore, that God takes what was once broken. And for some of you, maybe this week, you're feeling the weight of your own sin. You're feeling the weight of your own brokenness. You know what you're going home to. And I want you to know and understand that the God of the universe, his heart for you, his heart for your life, his heart for your relationship with him is is restoration. To take that which was broken, to take that which was lost, and the insanity of King Nebuchadnezzar is just this foreshadowing, looking ahead at the good news of the gospel, that Jesus would come and he would live this perfect life. First and foremost, to invite you into a restored life, a restored relationship with him. And then we see the story of Daniel. And at this point, right, if you skip over to chapter 6, if you want to s- uh, study chapter 5 later, uh, there's this beautiful uh story in chapter 5 of of God proving that he is sovereign, that he understands all things. And the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 4 would come into fulfillment in chapter 5. And we see this short-lived kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar's son. And then in chapter 6, we see the introduction of Darius, right? Who is, uh, y'all remember the beast from this morning? Homie with the one boot, right? This is Darius. So in chapter 6, we see King Darius come into power. And Daniel, Right? Your guy from chapter 1 who came into the picture as a young man. In Daniel chapter 1, right, we see uh, probably a 14, 15, 16 year old Daniel. Somewhere in there, chapter 1, they, where he resolves not to defile himself. And we see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're living in exile, trusting in God and trusting in what God says. Here in chapter 6, Daniel's probably about 80 years old. Hey, we see 65 years have gone by in this narrative, and Daniel now in his 80s has seen kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and he has remained faithful. And I love this story of Daniel that we get to see here. Right, and this morning in the drama, you saw uh, the other... Uh, the other, like rulers in this new kingdom under Darius, they're kind of jealous of Daniel and they see that Daniel has lived this, he's had this longevity in the kingdom, and they see that Daniel consistently prays to his God, consistently asks for help from his God, that Daniel is still, as an 80 year old man, trusting God and trusting what God says. And so they come up with this plan, this scheme, and they go to Darius and they say, Hey, what if you made a rule where nobody can ask for help from anybody but you? And Darius is like, ooh, I'm the only one people can ask for help? He's like, that's awesome, let's do it, right? And they're like, oh, what if, if anybody asks for help from anybody but you, they get thrown into the lion's den or the piranha pit? And Darius is like, bet, sounds good, right? Like, done, deal, like signs the decree. And then so here we pick up the story in chapter six, verse 10 says this, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Okay, pause real quick, Meadow Ranch, and look up at me. Notice, notice, Daniel doesn't hear about a decree where he goes like, it's illegal to pray, and he goes, oh, illegal to pray, you say, I'll show you. And he goes home, he opens up his windows, and he's like, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be like, he's not going. He's not making a show of this because it's illegal. It says, just as he had done before. Homie's 80 years old at this point in his life, and he has proven decade after decade after decade, I trust God and I trust what he says. And I'm going to go to him, whether it's whether things are good or whether things are really difficult. And so he opens up his windows. He prays just as he had done before, just as was his custom. Then these men went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they go to the king and they speak to him about his royal decree. And they said, king, did you publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or any human except, except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue, Right, circle that word rescue. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law, of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or or edict that the king issued can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. See, Darius realizes, I can't do the rescuing. And so he says, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually. Y'all, I love this about Daniel. The way that he lived his life was an example to even the king. He knew, he understand, he saw you cry out to this God. So he goes, look, even though I'm the king, I tried everything I can in my own power and I can't. He gets to a similar spot that five foot oh and six foot seven gets when they look at 1,250 feet in the air and they go, I can't. Someone else outside of this situation has to do the rescuing. He says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the ring of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in anguish, and in an anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. And then the king overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out. And then we know that this story isn't just like, well, maybe the lions weren't hungry because the very next thing that happens is these men that were uh, scheming against Daniel, they, justice is served by King Darius and they throw those men into the lion's den. And before they hit the bottom of the den, these, king, these lions consume them. And then Darius says this, I love his declaration. It says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. Notice the king that tried to do the rescuing is now declaring that there is a true king and only he can rescue. He rescues, he saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And friends, again, this is foreshadowing. This is looking ahead to a declaration that one day there will come a God who can redeem, a God who can restore, a God God who can rescue. So not only do we see this God restore and rescue, but we see a God that reconciles, that takes a relationship that's broken with him. And why is this relationship broken with him? Last night we saw it. Five foot oh or six foot seven, right? Sin breaks our relationship with God. It puts our trust in ourselves. It makes us believe that we have the answers, that we want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And so that sin creates a break. And all sin must be dealt with. Why? Because God is a just God. And God in his justice also has Wrath. And maybe you've heard about this wrath before. Maybe you haven't heard about this wrath before. But maybe like when it comes to God, maybe you have a hard time wrapping your head around. Like why would a good God send people to a place like hell? Why would a loving God go, hey, like there's going to be eternity apart from me. Like why would that even exist in the first place? And here's the reality. God invites all of us to be reconciled by him through him. But God is a God that has wrath. And we, friends, whether you believe it or not right here in this moment, we need a God that has wrath. You wanna know why? God's wrath is simply this. If you're taking notes and you wanna write this down, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. See, here's the reality about God's love for you and for I. He hates that which takes us away from him. God hates the things of this world that pull us away from him. Y'all like I never, I never thought that having kids could teach me as much as it has about the love that God has for me. But if you saw me and Piper and Phoebe, right, and I was just like out in meadow, hanging out with my daughters and my, both my daughters were putting themselves in a situation that was like dangerous, right? Maybe they were like walking on the edge of the pond or they were just doing something and I was just like, I was just like standing by going like, eh, whatever, right? None of you would be like, oh, you're such a good dad. Right? Like you love your daughters so much, like no, like like I hate that which which hurts my daughters. I hate that which pulls my daughters away from me, which puts them in danger, y'all. Like my uh, daughter Phoebe, she just had her like two month checkup at the doctor. I've never been so close to punching a doctor in the face in my life. You want to know why? Right, I'm standing in the doctor's office and uh, I'm sitting there, and the, the the doctor's sitting there. and Like she's telling me about these like shots that she's about to give Phoebe, and I'm like. Okay, and she's like, "There's going to be a little bit of pressure." If a doctor says there's going to be a little bit of pressure, don't believe them. It's not a little bit of pressure; it's a lot of bit of pain, right? And so the the doctors talk to me about these like shots that they're about to give Phoebe, and like babies cry, right? Like, if you've been around a baby, babies cry. But there's like there's like a like a hungry cry or like a sad cry or just like a normal baby cry, and then there's like a I'm in pain cry. And I hate seeing my daughters in pain. It's like one of the worst things for me as a dad. Like I, I hate everything about it. And so this doctor like jabs a needle into my daughter's thigh and she gives the like I'm in pain cry. And I just look at the doctor like, I'm gonna kill you, <laughs> right? Like you just hurt my baby girl. Right? Like I, I hate that which hurts my daughter, And so the God of the universe, even more so in perfect wisdom, in perfect love, looks at the things of this world that hurt his children, that pull his children away from him, and God's wrath is poured out on sin. Why? Because it's his love in action against that sin, against that brokenness. And so we have a God that restores. We have a God that rescues. We have a God that reconciles, that brings us back into him. But the question is, how? And this is the part, friends, where genuinely, like, you might be sitting here going, like, why is that table on stage? I wish wholeheartedly that we could just pause chapel right here. And I could just sit down, like, we would go down to the coffee shop, and we would just kind of, like, open up my Bible and I would crack my coconut LaCroix because it is the best flavor of LaCroix, right? It's vacation in a can. And I'd give you your motz, 100% apple juice. You're welcome, okay? I don't know why they had to put the 100% apple juice. Like, what else would it be, right? I don't know. But here you go. I'll put your straw in there for you. I just wish we could sit down, just me and you. And I wish we could, we could kind of hash this thing out a little bit. And we would open up my Bible to, to a book of Romans. And, I, and you might sit here and you go, okay, Austin, like I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I've been tracking all week. I understand that this is a God that says like we, we can put our, our hope in him and our trust in him. This is a God that we can like, persevere through trials. This is a God that invites us into relationship with him. But like but like How? How does this whole thing play out? And this is where I would just, I would just open up my Bible with you. And I would turn to, to Romans chapter 1 and, and I would say, hey, let's just read in my Bible for the sake of time because we're just going to flip to a bunch of places right now. And Romans chapter 1 says that God has made it abundantly clear that he is God. And Romans chapter 1 says that creation itself cries out that there is a creator, that God is placed in the heart of mankind that there is a God, that you, you can't look at creation and think it just happened by chance, right? Like if we were to walk out into the woods and we were just gonna go for this hike and we came across the cabin in the middle of the woods and I went, man, there was a crazy storm last night, like just like the wind blew and the rains came and like the way that these trees fell just made the cabin. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? I know, mean, no, when you come out into the middle of the woods and you see intelligent design, you see a cabin built in the middle of the woods. The only question is, who built this? Who placed this here? And Romans chapter one says that creation itself says that there is a creator. That intelligent design says that there is an intelligent designer. And this is the beginning of the gospel message. The good news is that there is a God. But the problem is that Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says that no one is good, not even one. That every single one of us, Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, we have this sin problem. And that sin separates us from the God that Romans chapter 1 talked about. It says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And you go, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, remember my boy James And uh, uh, Casey, yeah, yeah. So five foot zero and and six foot seven, right? Like we all have a sin problem. We all fall short of 1,250 feet. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So God, the God of the universe is perfect. Isaiah chapter six says that there's angels surrounding him just crying out, holy, holy, holy. There is no one holier than he is. No one's more separate, right? Separate from creation than he is. Right? God says that I am this perfect God and you must be this tall to ride is 1,250 feet in the air. And we all walk up to it and go, we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, 23, and we return there in my Bible and it says, Romans six twenty three says that that sin has a consequence. That sin only pays in one way and it's death. And you go, whoa, Austin, aren't we all going to die? And I go, yes, but when Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, the way that sin pays, this isn't just talking about like a physical mortal death. The, the wages of sin is death, which is an eternal death. It's this eternal separation from God. And this is where you might take a, a sip of your juice and go, didn't you say this is good news? And I go, yes, just not yet. There is a God, and then we have a sin problem. Every single one of us, for all have sinned. And that sin problem pays in one way, and it's death. And then Romans 5 is going to say that God, in the perfect timing, Romans chapter 5 says, God, at just the right time, demonstrates his love for you and his love for me. He demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, when we were God's enemy, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we came to him looking right, or when we, we, we showed up at church and we showed him our church attendance, or we had shown how many good things we had done in the last couple of months. No, it says at just the right time, while we were God's enemy, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And you might go, whoa, why did Jesus have to die? And this is where I would back up and go, hey, remember the wages of sin is death. You go, oh, okay, I get that. In 2 Corinthians, we would turn over real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 that says this. It says, God gave him who knew no sin, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus. God sends him, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, John chapter one, verse 14 says. It says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You go, okay, so I five foot zero oh or six foot seven, there's this gap between us that we cannot be righteous and so Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. 33 years without sinning. He lives a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And then he dies a death on the cross that you and I deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. death. And so Jesus dying on the cross, he says, I will die in their place. And then in the greatest exchange of all time, he says, I will give you my righteousness. I will give you my life in exchange for your sin." So, God lives the perfect life that you and I couldn't live through Jesus, and then He dies the death that you and I deserve to die so that we might live the life that Jesus deserved to live. I say, but here's the best part of the story Jesus didn't stay dead. That says that three days later, but the Bible's gonna make it crystal clear that Jesus proved that he could make dead things alive, Jesus raises himself from the dead, proving that he has authority, power, even over sin, even over death. See, here's the reality. All sin must be paid for, either by you or by Jesus. Jesus. All sin will be paid for. Sin pays in death, and all sin will be paid for either by you or by Jesus. So Jesus lives this perfect life, dies a death, resurrects from the grave, and then invites you to respond. And if we were sitting here, maybe you'd go, okay, Austin, I I get all that, but what now? What do I do do with this? And we would turn over to, to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. And in Romans chapter 10, it says this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, but here's the thing about the word confess. Confess means that the words that you say, your life will follow. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And now, lordship is something that we don't necessarily talk about in everyday life, but lord, like a lot of people, I think, want a savior. Not a, people, not a lot of people want a lord. So it says if you confess with your mouth that the words that you say your life will follow, that Jesus is lord, you take the steering wheel of your life and you hand it over to him. If you've ever been in a car where there's multiple people trying to steer the wheel at the same time, it doesn't typically go well. Right, like there's been a handful of times where I've driven with like Piper on my lap and like I'm driving and then all of a sudden like she puts her hands on the steering wheel and she's like, and it's like, whoa, like two hands on the steering wheel don't work. In, In lordship, Jesus says either I will be lord of your life or I will be nothing at all. Jesus doesn't want a part of your life. He will either take all of it or none of it. He will either sit on the throne of your life and be king or he will not be in your life at all. Jesus, so Romans chapter 10, verses nine through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will spend eternity with him in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life in Jesus, with Jesus. And here's what I want to invite you into right now, Meadow. If you were sitting with me and we were having this conversation, I would then ask you, hey, what do you want to do with this gospel? What's keeping you today from giving your life to Jesus fully, from confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, from believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he proved that he could make dead things in life? You and I, without Jesus, are dead things. And if we were sitting here, I would go, hey, friend, what's stopping you from giving your life, surrendering your life fully to Jesus, bowing your knee to him, going, you are Lord, not me. For the rest of my life, you have authority. You have the steering wheel. I give you my life. My life is no longer mine. It's yours. And with that surrender comes life that's actually life, infinite joy, fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And so in just a second, friends, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before, you've never given your life fully to him, and tonight you wanna put your hope and your trust in him and give him your life and call him Lord and believe in Jesus for your hope, for your life, for eternity, I'm just gonna invite you to pray a very simple prayer with me. And let me make something crystal clear. Right? No prayer saves. Jesus saves. So there's no magic formula. Right? There's no like words in the right order. So if, when I invite you to pray with me, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you a simple prayer. But friends, like your prayer, your business, just between you and God. Right? Like if it's not my exact words, that's okay. There's no formula. Jesus saves. But I'm gonna invite you to pray something like this. And then when after I pray, I'm gonna ask you that if you surrendered your life to Jesus for the very first time and you prayed this prayer with me, I'm gonna ask you to stand up after my prayer and here's why I'm gonna ask you to do that. I know that's kind of scary. But when you stand after we pray, there's two reasons I'm gonna ask you to do that. Number one, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you surrendered your life to Jesus, that you went from eternal separation from God to eternity with God as his son and as his daughter. Romans chapter 8 says, You're adopted into the family. So, the first reason we want you to stand is we want to celebrate with you. The second reason is we want to keep you accountable. We want to go down the hill, and your leaders and your youth pastors, they want to look you in the eye, and then they want to walk this thing out with you that Christianity was never meant to be done alone. And so as we go down the mountain, as we go back home and we do things like youth group and life groups and community nights and you, t- you go out to in and out with your leader and you just talk through the reality of your life, you're never meant to do this alone. So right now, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus for the very first time, would you just pray something like this with me? God, tonight I recognize that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. God thank you for bringing me to this place Hume Lake that I can hear your word. And tonight God I just I confess that you are Lord. I give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. God and I believe in the life of Jesus and I believe that his death paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe that his resurrection, the fact that he didn't stay dead, is what invites me now into having life in your name. God, I give you my life. My hope and my trust are in you. And from this day forward, God, may I trust you enough to do what you say as my life is surrendered to you. Jesus, thank you for loving me. I love you, Jesus, and it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do, Meadow. Here's what we're going to do, okay? If you said that prayer tonight for the very first time, not that you've said it before and you said it again tonight, but tonight for the very first time, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before. Again, one, we want to celebrate. Two, we want to keep you accountable. If you've never said that prayer before, go ahead and stand up to your feet right now. Awesome. Heck yeah. Awesome. Counselors, youth pastors, make sure you look your students in the eyes. Know who they are. Heck yeah. Cool. If you're standing at your feet right now, right, and you surrendered your life to Jesus, hey, let me be the first to tell you, welcome to the family, right? As a son, as a daughter of the king, absolutely. Heck yeah. Hey, you guys can grab a seat. Hey, I want to just take a quick second and talk to another group of you. If you're in this chapel and you didn't just stand to your feet, you're telling me one of two things. Either. Number one, you've already said that prayer before. Okay? And, and I'm going to talk to you in just a second. Like You're sitting here and you go, like, no, Austin, like, I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. My hope and my trust is in him. Like, I'm experiencing that infinite joy. I love Jesus. My life is about Jesus. I'm going to talk to you in just a second. I think there's a second group of you that didn't stand up that you go, mm, I'm not ready for that. I'm not there yet. I still have doubts. I still have questions. I still have fears. I don't know about this God thing. I don't know about this Bible thing. Can I just encourage you for a second? If you're sitting in here and you're doubting, you still have those questions. Friend, this is the best place possible to keep doubting. Hey, the worst thing you can do is take those doubts and those fears and those questions and just go, eh, I don't know. And walk out of this place and not ask the question of the leaders that are up here, the youth pastors that are up here. Friends, the leaders that came up with you to camp, if you went to them tonight or tomorrow and went like, hey, can we talk? Last night I, I heard that gospel message, but I don't, I don't know. I'm still doubting. I'm still wrestling. I'm not, friends, they're here to walk that out with you. They want to have those conversations. So let me challenge you. If you're wrestling with God still, keep wrestling, keep leaning in. And now for the group of you that would sit here tonight and go, hey, I didn't stand because I've already given my life to Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? The Bible, uh, Jesus's first words, when he starts his ministry, he lives 30 years of life and then he kicks off his ministry. And the first words that Jesus says is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus dies on the cross, he resurrects, he shows back up to his guys, and then he gives them a decree. His 11 disciples at this point, he says, hey, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, I'm gonna be with you. And then Jesus goes back to heaven and he says, I will return, in the meantime, go and preach, expand my kingdom. And Peter, in the book of Acts, the first words of Hittus' ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is, is kind of this big churchy word that literally translated just means to change your mind. It's like you're walking this direction and then you stop in your tracks, you change your mind about the direction you're walking, you turn around and you go, I'm gonna walk this way. And for some of you sitting in this room, you might have surrendered your life to Jesus in the past, But tonight, sitting here, hearing the gospel message, you go, ooh, I might have given my life to Jesus, but I'm not living like it. And when Austin, when you said confess means the words that come out of your mouth means that your life will follow. If I look at the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months or maybe the last year, I know that my life doesn't look like I'm following Jesus. And there's a sin in my life Or there's something in my life that I know needs to change. And tonight, friend, the God of the Bible is inviting you to repent. And saying there's something you need to give up. There's something you need to walk away from. You need to course correct to come back to Jesus. And would you hear wholeheartedly the same grace, the free gift that you and I don't deserve, the grace that is the life of Jesus given to you the forgiveness of your sin, the exact same forgiveness of sin that Jesus died on the cross for, that grace extended to you for the very first time if you stood up tonight is also extended to you when you repent. God's not looking at you when you repent and going, finally, he's back. Y'all, your leaders, the youth pastors, me as your speaker, your Hume staff, we are in need of repentance all the time. And so tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus and you know that there's something you need to repent of, friend, and let me, just, let me just talk to you for a second. Don't stand up because the person next to you stood up. You wanna know why? Because your leader is gonna ask you tonight, hey, why'd you stand? And I want, I wanna, I'm gonna challenge you to be bold enough to go, here's something that needs to change in my life. They're gonna call you on it. They're going to ask you, "What did you repent of tonight?" And I want you to walk that out, And the reason I'm going to ask you to stand for repentance in just a second is the same two reasons. Number one, we want to celebrate with you and go, "Heck, yeah, you're getting back on track to the best thing you could ever do, which is live a life fully surrendered to Jesus. We want to celebrate that. And number two, your leaders in this room, the youth pastors, want to look at you and then we want to keep you accountable. When you repent tonight, we're going to, we want to go down the hill and go, "Hey, Remember remember that thing you stood at camp for? How's that going? Some of you need to take a door off your room. You need to charge your phone downstairs. Maybe you need to break up with a boy or a girl. You need to change a friend group. You need to walk away from something because it's keeping you from following Jesus. So tonight, friend, if you know that there's something in your life, and again, Don't stand for repentance just because the people around you are standing. Like Stand because you know you need to do business with God. Tonight, if you need to repent of something and you want to get back on track, this isn't re-giving your life to Jesus. This isn't upping the gospel. This is just you going, I need to repent of something. Follower of Jesus in this room, if you know you need to repent of something and you want to get back on track with Jesus, would you stand up to your feet right now? Awesome. Heck yeah. Hey, let me challenge you. Whether you stood to give your life to Jesus for the first time or you stood for repentance, whether you stay back in chapel after this or you go back to your group and you're diving into conversation, if you stood tonight for either one of those, you have to have a conversation with a leader or a youth pastor and go, hey, this is what I stood for. Friend, this is a room full of people that if you give your life to Jesus, it's scary what you could do for the kingdom. We have a very real enemy that doesn't want to see repentance happen, that doesn't want to see surrender happen. And if you standing here tonight go, I'm living my life fully for you, Jesus. And I'm gonna go down the mountain and in my schools and my families and my friend groups, on my sports teams and my theater group and my band, whatever it is, you go, I'm gonna live my life for Jesus and only Jesus. It says the gates of hell cannot stand against the power of the gospel. You, as a servant of the king, as a daughter, as a son of the God of the universe, would you live your life for Jesus and only Jesus and watch the greatest adventure of all time unfold as you dive into a relationship with a God that offers infinite joy, full fulfillment, satisfaction in him. Does that mean your life's gonna be easy? Heck no. Just ask any of your counselors that have been following Jesus. Does that mean your bank account's gonna be full and you're gonna be happy all the time? No. Is following Jesus easy? No. Is it worth it? Absolutely. So as we sing this last song, whether you gave your life to Jesus for the very first time, or maybe you repented tonight to come back to him, would you sing this song with your hands open in front of you to receive, or your hands up high just in surrender? Right? I love when Piper runs up to me and she puts her hands in the air and she goes, dada. right? Would we do that tonight? Would we put our hands up and just go, I need you, God. I surrender to you, God. Thank you for your gospel. Would we worship as a response knowing that we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Pray with me and then let's worship. God, thank you for tonight. God, thanks for the power of your gospel that can save. Thank you for Jesus. Thanks for loving us first. God and I just pray over these sons and daughters of the King of the Universe. God, would you raise up mighty men and women out of this room that create revival in their hometowns, revival in their churches, revival in their families and their communities? God, with the power of the gospel, with a response to you, not stay here in Meadow Ranch, not stay here at home, at Hume, God, but as we take it home, and we live it out, confessing that you are Lord, believing that you raised God Jesus from the dead. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for loving us first. We worship you now in response. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.